Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We're going to get into um, the first letter that John wrote to uh, a church going through crisis. So, so Tony was up here talking about a posture of worship, a posture of, of praising God. So I would ask that you would join me in a posture of just standing at attention to hear God's word, to be listening and receptive. So we stand up, and if uh, we can read God's word together, and we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. We'll chop it up a little bit. All right. So we're going to be in John's first letter in chapter 2, starting in verse 18. These are the words of the Lord. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his teaching anoints, or I'm sorry, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to you rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. And said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. God, we lift up to you this morning thanksgiving for your grace, for your kindness, for your steadfast love, for your constancy, God. We ask, Lord, that you open our hearts this morning to receive from your word. Holy Spirit, would you be here teaching us? And um, God, we just pray that you would be glorified by our time here together, by our, our, our offerings, and um, just by our lives. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Thanks, you guys. Um, so... If you're new, if you're visiting, or if you've forgotten what we've been going through for uh, the past few weeks, we're going through a letter called 1 John. 
And um, John is writing a letter to a church that he knows and he's familiar with. It's a letter he's writing to a church that's going through a time of crisis. Um, it's, a, it's a community that John is familiar with and he feels affectionate towards. He calls them dear children, beloved. He's got intimacy and relationship with this community, with this church. And, and he's got, he feels like he's got pastoral responsibility towards this church. And so one of the things that he's writing about and he's trying to pastor this church through is, is a fracture to its unity. Um, you have a group of people that John talks about that have left the church, that have broken fellowship deliberately. And not only that, um, they're making denials. They're actually aiming at some of the central claims of the church about who Jesus is. They're going to the heart and soul of what the church is all about, and they're making, you know, they're repudiating what the church is saying. And so you've got, you have a community that's relatively young, right? I'm willing to wager because the apostles, the first generation, the first eyewitnesses of Jesus are still alive. John is still alive, and he's writing to this church. So it's a relatively young community it's probably living in a, in, a, in a rather hostile cultural and intellectual environment. That's difficult enough, right? It's living under the shadow of intermittent persecution. That's difficult enough. That's, that's, a, that's as challenging a situation as any pastor would want. And on top of all that, you got people that, that you once called family that you once called brother and, and sister, bless you, and uh, you once called brother and sister, and they're, they're, not only are they leaving, not only are they breaking fellowship with you, they're saying that everything you've been taught, everything you've heard about Jesus is, lie, is a lie, is not true. In verse uh, 18, he says, Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. That's great. One would be bad enough, now we have many. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So there's a break in the unity, and it's in this situation that John's writing, and he's kind of setting this, as he's, as he's responding to this crisis, he's, he's writing to the church, and I think he's, he's trying to establish this criteria of what's true. What's, who's telling the truth, right? How do we know who's being truthful and who's a liar, right? If you read through the book of, of 1 John, you see that phrase come up often enough. If, if a person says they love God but they don't keep his commands, that's a liar, right? If you say that you, you have fellowship with God and you walk in the light but really you're living in darkness, you're a liar, right? This is, John is, is, is trying to establish this, this criteria, this, you know, how do we know? And that's the dilemma that, that this church is in, you know, how do we know? Who should we believe? 
Who should we follow? Who are we supposed to trust when they tell us about Jesus? How do we know? Which message is original and which message is artificial? Who's being truthful and who's being deceitful? Who's being authentic and who's being counterfeit? And so John, as he responds, I believe he's trying to show like two criteria that link together, two aspects of when Christians talk about truth and truthfulness. There's two aspects that work together, and John's highlighting both of them. One that he talks about is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, He says in uh, verse 20, But you all have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Um, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and there's no lie in the truth. So he's talking about you've been anointed by the Holy One. You've been anointed by God's Holy Spirit. You know The Spirit don't lie. There's no lie in the truth. You know. And the other aspect of it is the the message of the apostles, the original message. What John says is what you've heard from the beginning, what we've always taught, what we, the eyewitnesses, have told you, and we didn't change that message. It's the same. It's original. He says in verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So these two are so closely related. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, the original message of the apostles. The two are linked together. He uses the same language to describe them. He talks about abiding, right? In in, uh, in verse 27, he says, The anointing you received from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and it's true and it's no lie, just as, he, as, it, just as it has taught you, abide in him. In verse 24, he says, what you heard from the beginning, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So, so there's two aspects to this truth that he's trying to, to, uh, to communicate in a, in a situation of crisis, in a situation where... Um, People are, are coming up against opposition. People are coming out against um, skepticism and these, and these radical denials. And um, the, first, the first part he talks about is the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I know that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, sometimes it, gets, uh, can, it can be a source of confusion for people. It can be um, just honest. I don't want to... I don't want to criticize anyone, but it's there's just stuff that some people are like. I don't know. That's that's when people act weird. They they say they invoke the name of the Holy Spirit and then they do crazy stuff. And I don't I don't mean to get into all that controversy. I just want to say this: that the antidote to some of this confusion about the Holy Spirit is not to leave the topic and and just stay quiet about it and just let it hang out there in mystery. Or let it be co-opted by people who are nuts and they just want to put a veneer on what they're doing. I think the antidote is is to listen to what Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit. He's the one that that talks about it. He's the one that, that brings it up. And so John's writing this letter to this church. John also wrote a gospel, right, for all Christians. 
And so as he is describing Jesus' last hours with his disciples, in the end of John's gospel, in like chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 of John's gospel, he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to read you a couple, just a couple of things, what he says, because I, I think it helps to uh, shine light on it. You know, it helps to uh, illustrate, and, and, it, and it, it comes together with what John is saying here in his letter. So in chapter 14, in verse 26 of John's gospel, Jesus is, he's trying to dep- prepare his disciples for the shock that's coming. As he's about to be arrested, as Jesus is about to be put on trial, as he's about to be crucified, he says to his disciples, he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send a helper to you. I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have said to you. Um, Two chapters later, in chapter 16, uh, verses 13 and 14, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to teach us to bring to remembrance, to bring to bear on our lives the things that Jesus has said. He's going to guide us into the truth. He's going to glorify and focus our attention on Jesus. And the way that this happens primarily is tied up with and is intimately connected with the testimony of the apostles. Um, In chapter 15, it says, in verses uh, 26 and 27, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus is saying this holy, the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness about me. And he says to his disciples in verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So the work and the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to lead and guide the disciples into truth to teach them, to confirm to them what Jesus taught them, to remind them of it. And it's the, Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit is right to bear witness and testify. And the way that he does it is through the witness and the testimony of the apostles. Right? He says, you also will bear witness because you've been with me since the beginning. The two are bound together. The, the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the apostles The two are bound together, and they shouldn't be separated. You shouldn't try to pit the Holy Spirit against the the apostolic testimony, the New Testament. When people say, I need to hear a word from the Holy Spirit, you don't have to go far. It's right here. It's published. It's not a secret. Right? He he said it, and it stands, and it's for us. It's, It's been handed down generation to generation. And Jesus tells it to his disciples, and John is reaffirming it to the church. And I just want to, I want to take just a small detour here because I know there's a lot of skepticism surrounding the Bible and the New Testament. And when I was 
a, a new convert, I guess. I didn't have, I didn't really have a church around me. I don't even think I had internet access. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know how to do research. I just had a lot of questions and I didn't know who to ask. And, um, and to be fair, you know, I read a, a number of books about, about, you know, the quest for the historical Jesus. Have you guys ever heard that term before? It's, it's popular like on Discovery Channel, the History Channel, Nat Geo, you know. And it's, it's declined a little bit, but for a while, it was, like, it was a booming industry to write a book about the historical Jesus. It was like cottage industry, you know. And I don't, I don't primarily, I don't mean to malign people's intentions or their integrity, but you don't have to be a genius to figure out one thing, that controversy and scandal, that sells newspapers. That garners attention. To say something that's incendiary that gets noticed, that gets attention, that gets published. That will get you on the cover of Time magazine. Right? How many people saw the Da Vinci Code or read the book? Not very many. I, you, know, you, didn't meet, you didn't miss much. I, I saw the movie and I was, I was disappointed that there was only one car chase. I was like, really? You know? But it's just supposedly this whole, you know, this conspiracy that Jesus was married and had children. And, and you know, like it's been this huge cover-up. And there's been, you know, there's, you know, there's a, a big range of fields of, of, of uh, professors and scholars and academics that, that seek to uncover who Jesus really was. And I'm not. I'm not any of those. I'm not an academic. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a theologian. I'm a bus driver. But, you know, I, I've read a fair amount and I've tried to, like, I've tried to engage with that. Like, is can we trust the New Testament as being historical? Is it reliable? Can we trust these people who say they're witnesses? And, and I've come through it, and it's been encouraging. It's bolstered my faith, faith. It's given me confidence. But I feel like the shortcut through all of that is this, is that the authors of the New Testament, the Gospels, the letters, they all claim and they make their appeal based on the fact that they are eyewitnesses to what happened. That they, they, what they say is what they heard. What they report is what they have seen. John opens his letters with this. He says, look, everything I'm telling to you is what I've heard with my ears. What I testify to you is what I've seen with my eyes. And he's not unique. Peter says the same thing in his second letter. He says, we didn't come to you with cleverly invented myths, but we are testifying to what we saw with our own eyes. Paul says the same thing in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, in I believe it's chapter 15, he's like, look, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to us. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to all these people. And, and, and least of all, he appeared to me. Luke says in the beginning of his gospel, he's like, everything I've reported to you, I've, I've consulted eyewitnesses. So this is an eyewitness characteristic of the New Testament. And, and my contention is this. If, if the people that, that lived with Jesus, traveled with Jesus, ate meals with him, went with him as he went from town to town, sat as his, at his feet, while he taught, saw the works that he did, lived in his same cultural context, spoke his language, if they don't know who Jesus is, 
then no 21st century scholar is going to be able to recover that for us. That's just, a, that's, that's just, it's arrogant to think that these first century followers of Jesus, they got it wrong, but these academics in the 21st century got it right. That's ridiculous. It just, that don't hold up. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold any water to me. And I'm, you know, there's a lot of good scholarship on Jesus, but the shortcut through all of that is this. They say, what we taught you is what we heard. And the message hasn't changed. What you've heard from the very beginning, let that abide in you. If anyone says any different, whatever, man. They weren't there. They don't know. So, John says, you want to know what's true? You already know it. The anointing you receive from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit don't lie. What you've heard from us from the very beginning, we don't lie. We're not lying. That's true. And, and hold on to that. He says, abide in that. Stay in that. Stay there. You all have knowledge, which is, you know, that I think is more striking when you think of the fact that probably some of these people in, in, that were in John's congregation and are leaving out, they're being like, Yo, y'all don't know nothing. We know. We're in the know. We got knowledge. We got the secret understanding. John says, man, you all have knowledge. We ain't keep any secrets from you. We told you everything. It's not, you don't have to go through some mystery, esoteric initiation like Freemasons or Mormons. You don't have to learn no secret handshakes or you don't need to know any passwords or, or whatever. We're not holding anything back. They got, we have Bibles on that front entry table. They're free. You can have one. It's everything we believe. It's all in there. We're not keeping secrets. You all have knowledge. We've told you everything. And so John is, is, is trying to, he's trying to help people discern be, between what's true and what's false, what's real and what's phony. And he says, do you want to know who a liar is? Do you want to know who's a liar? Someone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Antichrist. Uh, John says in verse 22, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John is telling us that this whole, this whole deal of who's Jesus, who is he really, is not just a matter of misinformation. What's at stake here is not just, is not minor details. It's not a matter of someone has the right facts about Jesus or not. What's at stake is whether or not somebody knows God whether or not someone can be called a child of God, whether someone has eternal life or not. And John says, if someone denies Jesus, they don't have the Father. I want us to pause here a minute. Let the weight of that rest on you for a moment. Because it's, I mean, it's 2016. And it's like, 2,000 years almost after Jesus, after John is writing this. And the world, you know, we're all, we're all pluralists now. 
everybody, everybody can believe as they choose. Everybody has their own way. Who can accept the claim that if someone doesn't have Jesus, they don't know God? Who can say that? Who can believe that everyone, everywhere, has to repent and be born again? If you don't, if you don't struggle with that, if you don't wrestle with that issue, I, I promise that there's somebody close to you who does. If you don't wrestle with the, the absolute unique claim that Jesus makes to be both Lord and Savior, somebody you care about does. I could, I could try to make a move to try and soften what he says, to attempt to make it fit within the parameters of like our, mo- our modern pluralist sensibilities. I could try and do that a lot. There's a lot of people that would, that they would. But the truth of the matter is John lived and wrote in a culture that was a hundred times more pluralistic than ours. And in a context and in a culture where there's thousands of so-called gods and lords, the apostles and the, and the first Christians with them, they say, we have only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, in, is, is he's preaching to a culture that has, you know, great piety and, and you know, ancient, venerable religious traditions. He has the audacity to say stuff like, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He says that in Matthew's Gospel. There's a guy uh, named Stanley Hauerwas, and he, uh, I think he teaches theology or something down at Duke University. And he, he's, he's down in the South, kind of on the board of the Bible Belt, and he's talking about how he runs into people who think they're like good, you know, Bible-believing Christians. And he's like, they say stuff like, I believe Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. How, what a ridiculous thing to say. Beliefs don't, they don't work like that. I'll give you an example, right? Feminism is a range of, of, of kind of a, has a range of expression. But one of the core slogans, one of the core defining beliefs is that it's, um, it's the radical notion that women are fully human and ought to be regarded as such. No feminist who's worth their weight in salt would add to the end of that, that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> that's not how it works. The danger is this, is if we bend to kind of reigning cultural assumptions and we try to make Jesus fit within our contemporary sensibilities, what we end up doing is we domesticate the gospel. We actually put, put, we put Jesus on mute instead of letting him speak. We, We just kind of factor out, Jesus, you can't say that stuff in here, you know? The power of the gospel is not that it nicely dovetails with our reigning ideas, our established belief, our culturally accepted norms. Rather, 
that the gospel calls all of them into question and it holds them up for examination. Our job as witnesses, as Christians, is not to make the gospel palatable in light of modern thinking, whatever that may be at any given moment. Rather, we look at modern thinking in the light of the gospel, in the light of the announcement that Jesus is Lord, that he came, he was born of a virgin, he lived, he taught, he was crucified for our sins, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he's coming again. That's the the core announcement of Christians since the beginning. And there's never been a time where Christians didn't proclaim that and didn't believe that. And the point is not that we would be innovative and be creative. I mean, I know that our culture is like super enamored with what's ever new. The newest fad diet or the newest iPhone or or whatever. The newest thing where you can, you know, drive without paying attention to driving. The fact of the matter is Christians are called to be unoriginal and just hold on to what we've heard from the beginning. That's super important. And I'm all, listen, if it was just a matter of yelling at people and telling them what they should believe, it'd be fine. I'd be, I'd be a stellar Christian. But that's, that's not the case. I'm all for, like, you love people, and you're gracious and kind and welcoming to people, and you establish credibility so that when you say, I believe Jesus is Lord, they don't be like, well, I don't have to listen to you because you're, you're an imbecile, you know? I'm all for loving people like Jesus. But you got to reckon with the fact that Jesus was crucified. He was lynched. And it wasn't because he was just a nice person all the time. Jesus, he said things, he did things that were as offensive and incendiary then as they are now. And if we want to follow him, there might be times where you just you have to grow a backbone. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a buffoon. But, but don't, I mean, don't, you don't have to bend over and just be like, whatever you say. Whatever is contemporary at this cultural moment, you, just, you don't have to go along with it. It's okay to stand and not back down. Um, so, let's keep going. John says to the church in verse 23, he says this, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So the point of all this, John says, the point of all this, holding fast to the message about Jesus Right? The whole point of the Spirit anointing us and teaching us is not just about information. As, as, the, as though like the whole point is that we would know these certain facts or we would assent to these certain beliefs about God. The point of all of this is that we would abide in the Son and in the Father. I'm guessing, I know personally, and I'm guessing... Many of us, we have this sense that 
we got a notion that like if we want to spend time in God's presence, we have to wake up super early. We have to be all alone and secluded and undistracted, and we can't let no one mess with that. And God forbid the kids get up and try to talk to us, go away. I'm trying to spend presence in the time of the Lord. We got to be in some sort of blissful zone, some highly emotional experience. But I just want to make the point of this. Our lives are hidden in Christ. And there's absolutely nothing that we go through where Christ is not present. Christ, uh, Jesus says, again, in the end of John's gospel, and I'll read it to you. It's in chapter 17, in verse 25. It says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved, I'm sorry, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ says that he makes the Father known to us so that the love that the Father has for the Son may be in us and he in us. And if you, if you, if you read that long, extended, like, farewell talk from, uh, between Jesus and his disciples, you'll see that he wants intimacy the point of sending the Holy Spirit is not that we would know facts, but that we would, you know, have some information, but it's, it's intimacy. This is not mysticism. This is just the basics of the gospel. Whether, whether we realize it or not, and I'm, I'm guessing most of us, it's not. And I worry that, um, yeah, that we... We take these things for granted. And we don't realize that, that, that Christ shares in our life, and we share in his life, that we're joined to him. And you think about that, all the things that you go through, that you feel like, where is God? I don't, I don't feel God's presence in my life. I just want you to consider for a second, if, if Christ lives in us, and his life is in us, the stuff that he's gone through first, that we're not alone in that. We're not, he's not absent. He's not unloving. He's not distant. Think of what Christ has gone through. And then, and then that, that puts our lives in, in context. When you have frustration with work or family, think about Jesus trying to teach people and they don't get it. Or his own family thinking that he's crazy. Um, when we face temptation, Jesus faced temptation ahead of us. When, when, when our friends or family think we're nuts, right? Christ has gone through that too. If we feel abandoned or alone, think about you know, Jesus, when he's betrayed by someone who he rolled with for three years. And when, and when, when, the, when the cops come, or well, the Roman imperial, you know, centurions, when they come, all his buddies, they leave, they run. It's like a scene from cops. Everyone takes off. Feeling abandoned and alone. He's been through that. Let down by people that you thought you could count on. He's been through that. Being betrayed, 
the loss of a child. The father knows what it's like to give his only son. What do we go through? What do we face in this life that Christ hasn't gone through and faced ahead of us? What do we go through in life that is apart from the presence and the love and the grace of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. This is, I, the only reason I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out here is because it's one of those things, it's like a treasure that you got that you take for granted that you don't know about. It's like the, that TV show where the, where the people wait in line with all this old junk that they found in the attic and some, some guy in a suit with like a little baton and gloves on, he's like, that's worth, you know, $18,000. And you, you had it the whole time, you didn't realize what it was worth. I don't want this to be something that we take for granted. You know, having a resource that we don't even, we don't even know that, that we have. The life we live, we live in Christ. And Christ lives to make the Father's love known to us. No matter what. No matter what. And it says in verse 25, this, this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. So right here, right now, Christ is in us. If we're in Christ, our life is lived with him and in him and through him. The promise that he's made to us is that death doesn't end that. Death doesn't cancel that out. I think the best way that I could talk about eternal life, which is, I mean, certainly you could do like a whole series on that. But there's a story in Luke's gospel um, that happens, you know, after Jesus is crucified, after he's buried, after the disciples run away scared. Um, you got two disciples that are walking on the road and they're going on a, on a journey together. And it says that um, after he rose from the dead, Jesus shows up in their midst and they walk with him and they talk with him and, and he's, he's teaching them stuff. Because they didn't think that the, the Messiah, they didn't think that the Savior of the world was supposed to die on the cross. And Jesus says, don't you, don't you know your Bibles? Don't you know the Old Testament? And he starts to show them, you know, in, in Genesis and in the prophets and in the Psalms, that this was always the plan. And it says that they, they, they actually have breakfast on the beach. And they have a fire and they grill out. They grill some fish together. And Jesus eats with them. And they give thanks. And this is... The message of eternal life, the message of the resurrection that Christians have always proclaimed is that this world, God made it, and it's wonderful, even though it's twisted by sin, even though it's full of corruption and full of decay, it's still magnificent because God made it. Life is amazing. Life is a miracle. And the fact that, you know, some people can try and replicate that in a test tube, that doesn't mean it make it less miraculous, you know? It's intense, and, and, and the resurrection of Jesus, it testifies that God's going to renew this world, is going to renew our lives, is going to renew all of creation. The last scene in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, is not about everyone in the church floats away into the sky where we get diapers and little harps and wings. 
It's not about us floating away into heaven, into some disembodied existence. It's the picture of heaven coming down to earth, just like we sang this morning, just like Jesus told his disciples to pray. Let heaven come. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. That's the message of eternal life. That's what Christians proclaim. That's, that's good news that we can tell people about. And he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may sure, be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, John says, in light of all this, abide in him. Don't shrink back. Don't flake out. Don't run off. Discipleship is something that happens over the long haul. It's something that happens over the long, long period of time, and it's not, it's not a disappearing act. Stick around. Don't run off. And in the meantime... He calls us to practice righteousness. And I put it in quotes because, I mean, we practice it because I don't think we're going to get it quite perfect. But we're called to practice. And this is is an example of like a wider emphasis that that John has in his letter, right? If we believe that that God is, is pure, that we purify ourselves. If we believe that that God is love, then we're called to love one another, right? So the righteousness that we're called to practice is one that's freely given to us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we merit. It's freely received. There's nothing that Christ calls us to do that he hasn't first done for us. There's nothing he calls us to embody that he hasn't given to us. And so it's ironic that he puts us in a family where there's there's ample opportunity to practice righteousness. We can practice um, forgiveness on the off chance that one of us might sin against another. I was being sarcastic when I said the off chance. Sorry. You don't know, right? Because you don't know if I'm serious or not. There's abundance of opportunities to practice righteousness. We can, we practice forgiveness, right? We, we, we practice patience because we wear on each other's nerves. We practice hospitality when we make room in our lives for one another. We practice sacrifice because love is nothing if it's not sacrifice. You know, I, I, drive, I drive the bus down the street like at least once a week. And they got the, the Buddhist meditation center across the street. And it's got a sign out that says, love without pain. And I just, if, if you pay attention to the cross as the, 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 the most sharp uh, revelation of God's love, I don't think that's a possibility, love without pain. I don't, I don't think it's... I don't think it holds up. These, these things that we practice, these are signs. 
These are evidences, right? We don't earn righteousness. We don't earn God's love, but it's, it's evidence that God is righteous and that he's, he's, he's working that out in our lives. It's evidence that we live in him. When we practice righteousness, purity, love, when we walk in the manner of Christ, these are visible, tangible signs that people can see that we are in him and he is in us. There's none of these things that we do on our own. God doesn't give us commands and tell us, go ahead, figure it out. doesn't drop us off in church and like, go play together. He's like, it's not like, you're forgiven, get out of here. He's in our midst, working it out, bringing, to, bringing these things to bear in our lives, bearing fruit in our lives. And we're just called to practice. We practice what we've already been given. One of the ways that we practice this, one of the ways we practice what we've already received is through the, sac- the sacraments, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. One of the most hospitable things you can do for someone who's homeless, for someone who's a stranger, for someone who's wandering, is to give them a bath and a meal. And in, in, in old times, in the ancient church, usually the, 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 the bath came before the meal. This is what Christ gives to us, and he says, do these things. This is what he's given to us. He washes us by his Holy Spirit. And he, he lays out, he provides a meal for us. And, and the meal that we have, the apostles say that this is, this is, this is our fellowship. This is fellowship with Christ. That when we, we eat this bread, that this is fellowship with his body. This is communion with his body. When we take this cup, this is communion with his blood. This is his meal. This is not something that we invented so we can be cool. This is a meal that he calls us to. He invites us to. And he makes us worthy to partake in it. Because apart from his grace, we're not worthy. We're not not clean. He washes us. He gives himself as a sacrifice for our sins, for our transgression, for our rebellion. He calls us to this meal And he calls us to come and be welcome. And so when we remember this, and remember where we've come from, we wouldn't be, I don't know how to put it, other than we wouldn't be stuck up and to think that other people aren't welcome. We extend that welcome to others, to neighbors, to coworkers, to people that we love and care about because Christ has welcomed us. So as we come together, as we continue to worship, remember and dwell on the the great welcome that Christ has made for for us. And when we go out from here, that that welcome doesn't stop once church is over, you know, once our Sunday get-together is dismissed. That welcome is continuing. He keeps, he's still calling. He's still calling people to his table to have fellowship with him so that he could make the Father's love known to them, that he could abide in their life. So let me stop talking. We'll pray, and um, we'll continue to praise God together. Um, 
God, we thank you for, for the fact that you don't leave us orphaned and abandoned. We thank you, God, that um, you don't leave us alone, but by your Holy Spirit, God, you, you abide in us. You call us to abide in you. You welcome us to you. You teach us. You confirm to us um, your truth, God. And um, we just pray that, that people would be encouraged. And we pray, God, Holy Spirit, that you would continue through us to make your appeal, to testify, to glorify you, God. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use even frail, insecure people like us, imperfect people like us, that we could practice righteousness, God, and, and practice love, practice hospitality, and that um, people would see, people would see. Pray for boldness to hold fast and to, uh, to hang on to the message that we've heard from the beginning, God. And I just thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for your grace, God. I thank you for the hope of eternal life and for the hope of your kingdom that will come. We ask all these things, God. We make this appeal through your name in Christ our Lord. Amen.